Welcome again. Glad to have you all with us. Uh, we are going to take a break from Matthew for a while. We're going to spend the next month and a half or so skipping around in uh, book four of the Psalms. So we're at the first one of book four, Psalm 90. Psalms are the biggest book in the Bible. Uh, it's right in the middle. So open up to the middle of the Bible, look for something called Psalms, find big number 90, Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Let's ask for God to help us understand his word. Father, thank you that you speak to us through these many thousands of years. Your word is alive. It's active. It cuts into our very souls, exposing us for what we really are, showing us who you really are. Help us to see ourselves and to see you truly this morning by the light of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm a pastor in an urban area, and urban pastors are supposed to be really cool and culturally with it. So here is a culturally with it introduction. There is a scene in Return of the Jedi <laughs> where after Yoda dies, Luke Skywalker is despairing about being left alone. Luke Skywalker is uncertain of how he can face the evil of the dark side without the stability and the wisdom of his wise master. But then you remember the scene, he's standing there by the X-wing in the swamp. He hears behind him a voice from the past. His previous mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, has appeared to him as a ghost. He's there to encourage Luke that he can and he must persevere in his fight against Darth Vader. In the wider context of all of the Psalms, there's 150 of them, 
Psalm 90, this one, is something like Obi-Wan Kenobi's stabilizing voice from the past. The Psalms are arranged into five books. It might appear at first that the Psalms are pretty random. They're actually not. There's an order to them, and there's a structure, and there's an argument to them. Uh, This is the beginning of the fourth book. The first three books deal largely with the suffering and the misery of God's king and God's people. And then the third book ends, Psalm 89, ends with this profound despair about the devastation of Jerusalem, about the defeat of Israel's king under the merciless conquest of the Babylonian Empire. Psalms 88 and 89 are the darkest of all the Psalms. Psalm 89 has a question at one point that says, God, where is your love? It's as if it's disappeared. In the wake of this conquest by the Babylonians, God's people were exiled far away, all the way to the east into Babylon. They became unmoored and unstable. And so it's now here in Psalm 90 that a voice from the distant past appears. It's Moses. It's the only psalm that's attributed to him. You remember he was the great leader of Israel way back when, when God brought them out of the land of Egypt. They were slaves there and then Moses led them around the wilderness for decades of wandering around outside of the promised land but never quite getting there. Moses himself never got to go in. And so kind of like Obi-Wan Kenobi, Moses has reappeared at a time when God's people are full of despair and anxiety about the future. They are wandering outside of their home just like they had been in Moses' own lifetime. And like them, with Moses in the wilderness, like the Israelites exiled into Babylon, like them, many of us today look around at the state of the world, we look at the state of the wider church, and we too often feel anxious. We too often feel homeless and aimless. We feel like our world is spinning out of control, that nothing is stable, that everything is changing. And we wonder, where is God in all of it? What is he doing? Has he forgotten about us? Has he given up on us? So here's what Moses has to say to us today. This is what Moses has to say to God's people wherever and whenever they ache at the instability of this world. First, he says in verses 1 to 12, he gives us a sober reminder. And then in verses 13 to 17, he makes a desperate plea. The reminder, first half, is meant to humble us. And the plea, second half, is meant to encourage us. So first, we have the sober reminder. Here's the reminder. God is eternal, and we most certainly are not. God is eternal, you are not. Look at verses 1 to 2, the beginning of the psalm. They're primarily about who God is, how important it is in the midst of suffering and anxiety to remember what God is like. This is so often where the Bible begins for us. Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Probably a better translation for dwelling place. That sounds kind of formal and stuffy. A better translation is, I think, just the word home. Lord, you've been our home in all generations through all of our history. Moses led the people of Israel through the wilderness for years and years. And a thousand years later, the people of Israel go into exile in Babylon. 
And then about 700 years after that, the New Testament is repeatedly describing Christians as being foreigners in the world, journeying, but not yet arrived in their heavenly home. It's a common theme all through the Bible. We do not have a home here, but we do have a home in God. We were made to know Him, to live in Him, and to enjoy Him. And so Moses is saying, Lord, no matter what we're going through, no matter how bad it gets, you have always been our home. In you, we find warmth and welcome and safety. But of course, this world, as good as it can be, even on its best days, this world is deeply unstable. And so that's why it's so good to find our home in God, not in this world. Unlike us, unlike our world, God never changes. God has always been what he always is going to be. So Moses says, before the mountains were brought forth from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's reminding us here that God created the most stable significant features of our world, the very mountains themselves, using the imagery of God kind of birthing them, like God's like a midwife birthing the mountains out of the earth. But even before God did all of that, even before there was time even, God was simply and fully himself. Now we look back on the past, we experience the present, we think about the future, So much of it, past, present, and future, is overwhelming us. So much of it is discouraging us. So much of it is surprising us. But to God, in a sense, everything is before Him at once. God is beyond time. For God, there is a sense in which everything is now. And so God is a stable and certain home for us, no matter what might be happening in our own generation. Moses wants us to remember that God is eternal, but his main point is to remind us that we are not eternal. Unlike God, we quickly change, and the greatest of all changes is death. Verse 3, You return man to dust, and you say, Return, O children of man. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that flourishes in the morning and fades in the evening. And so Moses is acknowledging that God rules over our lives. God determines the exact timing and manner of our deaths. Our return to dust. Remember, Adam was made out of the dust. Part of God's curse was that man would have to return to the dust. Moses Moses says in verse 10 that the years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. They're soon gone and we fly away. His point is that we only last a few decades. Moses says in verse 4 that even a thousand years is totally insignificant in comparison to God's own eternity. He says it's like yesterday. He says it's like a watch in the night, which means just a few of what we call the wee hours. And so even if you sleep poorly at night, even if you have little people waking you up in the middle of the night, even you can can admit that those little bits of the night, those stretches in the night, quickly disappear from your minds if you think of them at all. I had one of them last night. I haven't thought of it much since I got my cup of coffee. 
Moses is saying that even if you live a thousand years, and maybe Elon Musk will make that possible somehow, even if you live a thousand years, he says, big whoop, you're nothing. This life is very short. This life will go by very fast. And then you will be forgotten. It's something really important for us to remember in our world today. In so many ways, our world conditions us to avoid thinking about our deaths. It allures us with these false promises that we can have constant pleasure and constant comfort. It enchants us with this idea that this is our home and that our party in it is never going to stop. The worldwide panic over COVID has revealed how deeply fearful we are about death, how unprepared for it we are. Moses is reminding us about how short our lives are. But that's not all he's doing. He reminds us not merely that we're mortal. A lot of people, if you think about it, for not that long, a lot of people recognize that we're very mortal, we're very frail. He's not just doing that. He's also explaining why we're mortal. He says we're mortal because we and our world are under God's judgment. We are under a curse. Going all the way back to the first humans and their rebellion against God's good, wise rule and the limits that he's placed upon us. So verse 7, Moses, again, kind of alluding to the beginning of the Bible when humanity rebels against God. Verse 7, we're brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath. We are dismayed. Literally, it says, by your wrath, we panic. We're terrified. He says, all our days pass away under your wrath. And so Moses is saying that death is not natural. Death is not normal. It's not just the way that the world happens to be evolving itself. Death is an enemy. Death is God's just curse upon the human family for our corporate refusal to accept and enjoy the life that he's offering us. We experience this curse. We experience God's wrath upon sin and humanity in the world. Not just at death, although that's part of it. We also experience it before death. Sickness, misery, suffering, anxiety, loneliness, boredom, poverty. All of these things, the Bible says, are manifestations of God's curse upon humanity and the world. Look again at verse 10. Moses says the span, that means length, the span of our lives is nothing but toil and trouble. You could translate it like this. Our whole lives are just anxiety and disaster. You cannot and you will not understand this world or yourself or your place in this world if you cannot see, if you will not see that this world is widely characterized by God's just anger against sin. Moses says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Literally, it says, Our secrets are before your face. God knows our secrets. He knows not only what we've done, He knows also what we have not done. He knows not only what we are, but also what we are failing to be. 
You can hide from other people pretty easily. You can put on a show for your pastor pretty easily. But you cannot hide from God. Now listen to what I'm saying next very carefully. This is really important. This does not mean that every instance of suffering in our lives is the direct result of someone's personal sin. This does not mean that every time you suffer, every time you are lonely, or every time you're depressed, or every time you die, whatever it is, it doesn't mean that you can tie that to something that you did wrong and God is therefore now zinging you for it. That is possible. Sometimes we don't want to think about this. Even the New Testament acknowledges this. Uh, We should not shy away from considering how and why we might need to repent when we do suffer. But usually, when we suffer, we are suffering as a result of sin in general, not specific personal sins. As a result of us being a part of Adam's accursed family. We are in the same boat. This is what makes humans so different from angels. Angels were all created one by one by one by one. God created humans as a family. We share in the same fate. If you are a Christian today, you are still sinful. And so you are still suffering sin's consequences. You are suffering it in the form of suffering itself, but also, too, your own death. There is not one of us this morning that can claim that we deserve a life full of comfort and ease. And so it's true. Any suffering that we experience, any suffering that God brings into our life, is at the end of the day, just. We deserve it. We can't say, what are you doing, God? This isn't right. This isn't fair. Don't you know how great I am? Don't you know how nice I am? Remember, God knows all of our secrets. He knows what we're really like. But here's something really important. Even though, as Christians, we really do suffer the consequences of sin, we experience the consequences of it in general, uh, and we don't deserve to have a life of ease and comfort, even though all of that is true, the Bible also says that if you are a Christian, none of it is actually God's punishment. God is not punishing you with suffering, even though He often does bring suffering upon us as a consequence of sin. The reason that our suffering is not a punishment for our sin is because Being a Christian means Jesus bore all of the punishment for your sin on the cross for you. It means you're not guilty anymore before God. Hebrews chapter 12 says that your suffering is no longer punishment. It's actually now God's fatherly discipline in your life. God is training you. God uses hard things in our lives. He uses suffering to correct us and to shape us, Hebrews says, so that we might share in His holiness. So for the Christian, suffering is no longer a punishment. It used to be. It's punishment on everybody else. It's not punishment for Christians because Jesus took the punishment for us. It's now become discipline. It's now become correction. It's now become actually an instance and a sign of the Father's love, as hard as that might be to believe sometimes. Jesus himself suffered in all kinds of ways on our behalf, even though he's the only person who ever lived who did not deserve God's judgment. He's the only person who has ever lived who could rightly say, I don't deserve what I'm suffering. The New Testament repeatedly says that for the Christian, suffering is a form of communion with Jesus. It's a way of becoming more and more like him. Even death itself. Death remains for us an enemy. It remains for us a curse. But for a Christian, in a sense, death actually becomes your friend. It's now the doorway into eternal life. 
It's the doorway into total freedom from sin and all of its consequences. And so that's why Christians should not be afraid of death, even if they might have good and godly reasons for not yet wanting to die. Remember the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians, you know, I really want to go and be with Christ. I'd love to die and be with Jesus, but for your sake, I want to keep alive because I have some work to do with you and for you. It's okay to not want to die, even if at the same time we shouldn't be afraid to die. God is eternal, and we certainly are not. We are frail, we are short-lived, we are deathly, all because of God's just curse on the human family. But few people, of course, see this or want to admit this. Moses acknowledges that. Verse 11, he says, Who considers the power of your anger? Who considers your wrath according to the fear of you? It's not just modern people who don't like the idea that God is angry. This is the natural human condition to think we're fine. What's God's problem? Who considers the power of your anger? The answer is, well, nobody, really, unless God graciously reveals himself to them so that they can now see themselves and him rightly. Think again about COVID the last couple years. How many politicians, how many scientists, how many doctors, how many journalists, how many pastors said, this pandemic is God's righteous judgment against a world that disdains him. And so what we need more than we need safety, what we need is to repent. How many people said that? Not many. We need to see our own mortality in light of God's character. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. We learn to count all kinds of things all the time. We count our dollars. We count our promotions. We count our vacation days. We count our grandchildren. We count up our likes and our comments. But Moses says we need to be counting something else. We need God to teach us to do it because we don't really want to do it. And the world around us certainly doesn't want to do it. We need to learn to count how many days we have left. We need to think about and be preparing for our deaths. And our deaths, Moses says are coming very soon. You are only going to live for as many days and as many breaths and as many heartbeats as your Creator has decided in His perfect wisdom and goodness and justice. In the grand scheme of things, there are not going to be very many of them. And when they run out, when your heart stops beating, when your lungs stop breathing, when your brain stops waving, you are going to stand before God and He's going to decide what you're going to be doing for the rest of eternity. So we need to see how little time we have left, how fragile and insignificant we are, how out of control we are. And Moses says it's by doing that that we become more and more wise and therefore better able to navigate this world's instability. So that's the sober reminder. But then you have Moses' desperate plea, starting in verse 13. He has this plea, not only on behalf of us, praying into the future for God's people. You know, Moses is praying for us. It's pretty cool. But also, it's a plea that Moses is giving to us for us to use for ourselves. This can become our own plea. Now, Moses does not just stoically admit that life is short, and often tragic and miserable. A lot of people do that. A lot of religions do that. A lot of philosophies do that. 
And Moses doesn't even just put it into theological context. He doesn't just stop with telling us that the human family is under God's judgment. Moses goes even farther. I think this is actually very surprising. Moses immediately turns to desperately pleading for God's mercy. Just after he's told us that we deserve all this stuff that's happening. Moses has told us how we can't claim that God is being unfair or unjust for all the suffering of this world. But then he turns right around and he says, Lord, but I know that you are a merciful God. I know that you are a kind God, that you are a gracious God, that you're a generous God. So he says, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. God had showed Israel and Moses in all kinds of ways how patient he was, even in the face of great sin and rebellion and ingratitude. But we today have seen this truth about God in an even clearer way than even Moses or David did. We've seen already the Father send his beloved Son, Jesus, God in the flesh, not just to speak God's word to us, not just to model for us a life of following God, as wonderful as those things are, but also to bear our suffering, to bear our judgment for us. God sent his son to do that for you. Jesus came to take upon himself all of the sadness and all of the misery of the human race, to suffer all of its horrific punishment upon himself so that we might receive blessing instead of judgment, so that we might receive life instead of death. So that for us, suffering, which used to be and should be punishment, could now become loving, fatherly instruction. So that death might no longer be our enemy, but actually our friend. So we too today, with even more confidence than Moses is praying here, we too should be mourning our frailty. We should be mourning our suffering. We should be mourning our homelessness in this world. But we also should even more confidently say, Oh Lord, return to us. Be our dwelling place again. Have pity on us. And so the plea for mercy quickly shifts into a plea for joy. Even in the midst of suffering, verse 14. Moses says, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. That word satisfy is the same word that gets used in Hebrew when you've eaten a lot and you're full. Like, oh, I'm so full, I'm satisfied. Moses says, God, do that like with us, with your love in the midst of suffering. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us, for as many years as we've seen evil. And so it's true, God does God will give us joy in the midst of the sorrows of this world. Lots of things going wrong in our lives. Lots of things that surprise us, that make us really sad, that we really struggle with. God can and will give you joy in the midst of all those things. You see it more and more. You experience it more and more. As you come to see God's steadfast, faithful, covenant love in His Son, Jesus. But this joy is especially something for us beyond the grave when God will restore us and this world in perfect peace. God really will be our dwelling place forever and ever. There will one day when Jesus returns and renews the universe, there really will no, be no more pain, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more loss, no more loneliness. We do mourn through the dark night of this 
world. But we know that in the morning of the resurrection, God will satisfy us. Not just for as many days as we've suffered here on earth, but for even more than that. Something even better than what Moses prays for. God will satisfy us. God will give us joy for endless days and endless years. The last piece of Moses' plea is verses 16 and 17. The plea for mercy, the plea for joy. Now what I'm calling the plea for stability. A plea for the stability of God's love first across generations. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. There's a sense in which Moses is praying for us today, even though he didn't know who we were. Moses and we pray for God to reveal himself to his people and to their descendants into the future. And so if a thousand years is ultimately insignificant in the grand scheme of God's plans for his children and for this world, how much less significant is the length of our own generation and what's happening in it? We need to be really careful that we do not measure God's goodness or character or plan based on the suffering and the chaos and the instability of our own generation. It's really easy to look around at what's going on in the world and become totally despondent over it and think, well, this is it. The world's done. God can't do anything about it. It's over. A thousand years isn't even enough time to see what God's doing. We need to zoom out. We need to play and pray the long game. We need to plead with God to mercifully reveal himself to our children and to their children and to their children and to their children and so on and so forth. We pray that God would use our church today in such a way that a lot of people whom we will never meet will come to know and love him because of what we're doing right now. A plea for stability across time, across generations, but also a plea for stability into eternity. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This final climactic plea is repeated twice for emphasis. In the midst of an unstable world of suffering and death, we are humbly asking God to strengthen us and our labors in whatever he's called us to. In our families, in our work, in our neighborhoods, in our gardens, in our studies, in our coding. We ask God, please bless and help me in what I'm doing from day to day so that it might last so that it might be for your honor, so that it might be for my neighbor's good, so that it might bear eternal fruit. We're pleading for God to bless our obedience and our labors so that they last into the world to come. It's another way, I think, of praying what Jesus taught us to store up our treasures in heaven through our day-to-day labors here in this valley of the shadow of death. Establish the work of our hands, Lord. Make them steady so that they last. Only the world to come is going to last forever. Only that life to come is stable, no matter how successful you might be here for a time. And so we need to live with our eyes and our hearts set on the eternally joyful morning of the coming world. Christians are the people of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so Christians can and should have confidence and hope in that world beyond our own resurrections, even as we now suffer and lament 
the sad and tragic brevity of our lives here. Moses wanted to humble us by showing us our mortality, but he also wanted to encourage us by showing us God's mercy in spite of it. Teach us to number our days so that we might get a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy toward an undeserving, rebellious people. Even we who claim to follow Jesus this morning know that there are so many ways that we fail, so many ways that we balk at you and what you call us to, so many ways that we sneer at the people you've placed around us, so many ways that we doubt your goodness and your plans for us. We too deserve to die. And yet you have shown us abundant mercy in Jesus, the only man who's ever lived who didn't deserve what he suffered. Thank you for giving your best to us, Father. Help us to number our days. Help us to somberly reflect upon our deaths, but not just to remain there, but to move beyond it into joy as we look forward to the resurrection. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.